So there is an actual town in the northernmost tip of Alaska. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. But this town is unique, or it's fairly rare, I should say, in that it, it experiences no sunlight from the middle of November to the middle of January. In fact, this past Tuesday was the first time that residents in Ukaikvik, Alaska, have seen the sun in over two months. In a place that experiences this much prolonged darkness, it's likely the residents were celebrating and getting up this past Tuesday to see the first rays of light in 66 days. But imagine if that weren't the case. Picture for a moment people settling into the darkness of winter, then gradually embracing the darkness, then beginning to appreciate the darkness, and eventually celebrating and loving the darkness. In a scenario like this, where darkness becomes venerated, the only negative would be the light. Isaiah 520 states these profound words, Woe to those who call good evil, who call evil good and good evil, and who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. As Jacob said, if you're joining us for the first time or maybe you've missed a week or two to start the year, this has been a series based on the image of God and the sanctity of human life. And so Pastor Jacob started us off in this series telling us that the purpose of mankind is to glorify God by reflecting him, by representing him, and by enjoying relationship with him. So every person on the planet is therefore made in the image of God and so has immeasurable, immeasurable value. But the problem of mankind is that though um, through Adam's sin in the garden and our own sin, the image of God in us was marred and stained. And our relationship with God was severed. And so in this state, though we still represent God in this sinful state, the, the way we do so is to really misrepresent him. It is only through repentance and faith in Christ Jesus that we begin to more accurately reflect God's character again. And then Pastor Cody made the point that as God's images, we're either sharing the light of Christ or we're serving as agents of darkness. We've been freely given life, so we're to freely give life in our relationships in the way that we think and speak and act. We're then either life givers or we're life takers. So God is the ultimate giver. He has given himself for us while we were his enemies through coming to this earth in the person of Jesus, dying on the cross to pay for our sins and defeating death. And he did this so that we who were made in his image can become renewed again and restored and made to be children who overflow with his light and his love. And then just last Sunday, I, John, laid out us, for us a, a beautiful facet of this image of God as well. He recognized for us that while an ever-present sinful conflict of God's image bearers among racial and cultural lines around the world and in our own country has been happening from the beginning, he said this, but then he shared that it's been part of God's plan from the very beginning, from the very start, to bring together a group of rebels 
from all of the world's peoples and ethnicities and nations and languages into one redeemed family in Jesus. And while we keep the beautiful and distinct aspects of our ethnicities and cultures that God brilliantly designed, our greatest identity is that we're sons and daughters of the living God. So this is the essence of who we are in Christ. We're images of the living God. Graciously forgiven and purchased by God, brought together as one from around the world and sent out to be life and light givers, ambassadors for Jesus Christ himself. So how do we shine our light in a land where good is called evil and evil is called good? Well, first, we have to recognize and expose by the light of life, Jesus himself, where this is happening. And how do we do that? How do we expose these things to enlighten ourselves, to see it, and then to be able to respond to it? How do we recognize and respond to the dark assault on God's image in the light of the world? That's the question that we're looking to answer today. How do we recognize and respond to the dark assault on God's image in the light of the world? The psalmist once said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so we're going to respond to this question in in three different ways, three parts to this. The first way that we respond, recognize and respond to the dark assault on God's image is that we let God's word itself expose our sinfulness, Satan's dark lies, and the stakes. We let God's word expose our sinfulness, Satan's dark lies, and the stakes. That's going to be the longest section by far, so hang with us. Um, while you listen, but the other two sections are going to be this. We remember the good news of Jesus for ourselves and our blinded fellow image bearers. We remember the good news of Jesus for ourselves and our blinded fellow image bearers. And the third way is seeing Christ's glory ahead. We die to self and we follow the light into the darkness. Seeing Christ's glory ahead, we die to self and follow the light into the darkness. So first off, how do we recognize and respond to the dark assault on God's image? We've said we let the word expose our sinfulness, Satan's dark lies, and the stakes. Romans 1.18 and following gives a pretty stark picture, pretty stark picture of every image bearer in his natural state of sin, being without excuse before God and deserving of his wrath. And why, you might ask, why is this the case? Because God has clearly revealed himself through his creation. He's clearly done it. And in doing so, instead of reflecting on the beauty around us and honoring and praising the source of it, we've praised ourselves and treasured the creation above the creator. Instead of living out our identity as image bearers, we become image collectors. Verses 19 through 20 tell us he's shown us his eternal power and divine nature. So look at the stars just shimmering on a cloudless, moonless night. Listen to a soft gurgling creek in the woods. Gaze at the stunning beauty of an orchid or the scintillating splendor of a sunset over the sea. Feel the power. Hear the roar. See the smoke rising from a massive waterfall. Look at the variety on display everywhere of trees, insects, birds, and animals in their furs 
in their plumage and all their sounds and shapes and their behaviors. See the majestic ancient Appalachian Mountains change colors and shades each and every season, year after year. And consider the beauty, finally, of the cultures, the colors, and the customs of the height of God's creation, his image bearers across this planet. When we see this, when we look at this, we clearly see the master craftsman and his love for his creation and all its magnificence. And so whether far or near, every creature made in God's image that has a mind and the capacity within it, sensory capacity to process, has witnessed these wonders of God's creation and yet done what verse 18 says in Romans chapter 1, suppress the truth. We've suppressed the truth of what every majestic thing that God has made points to, his eternal character and his divine nature. Every single one of us has done this. And so we don't properly, because of what he's made and the wonders that it points to about him, we don't properly revere him or treasure him or see him as he is the way that he only deserves. And so our sin has a progression that Romans 1, maybe more clearly than any other chapter in the Bible, shows us a progression. And this is both individually and within any society. We can see this progression. And knowing God through what he's plainly shown, yet failing to honor or thank him, verse 21 tells us we become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts become darkened. And so I want to go back to what Jacob brought up earlier in the garden. Remember the garden. God had made all things so well. He made them all very good. And he gave a man the responsibility to care and to cultivate, to name the animals, to enjoy the fruit of every tree but one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Think about that. He'd been given all this. The first time we hear something is not good in the Bible. Do you remember where it is? It's that man should not be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. And we see God make a helper in this moment who perfectly fit and corresponded to him and Eve. She was formed out of Adam's rib and then presented back to Adam. And so, yes, God presided over the first wedding in history. It was his idea. This was the bringing together of two people equally made in his image. It was his, one of his master plans of making his image that much more like him. That much more to reflect what he is like. One male and one female brilliantly and intentionally designed differently from one another in anatomy, in roles, and in strengths. And yet the two were brought together by God to become one flesh. To fully reflect what God is like to the rest of creation. They were brought together to become one to enjoy the pleasure of being fully known and loved. They were brought together for the task of fruitfully multiplying through children to fill and subdue and have dominion over the creation as God's appointed caretakers. God gave all of these amazing gifts, amazing gifts to his image bearers. But then a serpent came on the scene. Revelation 12, 9 to 10 tells us this serpent is called the devil and Satan and that he's the deceiver of the entire world and the accuser of all of God's children. Our Lord Jesus Christ says this about him in John 8, 44. Listen to these words. This is from Jesus. 
talking about Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This very father of lies, this murderer, Satan, slinked into that first garden and put God in a false light before his image bearers. Satan presented God not as a giver of all good things, but as one who could not be trusted and who was actually trying to keep back his image bearers from truly becoming like him. He told the first couple they would not surely die if they ate the forbidden fruit, but that God knew that they'd become like him and knowing good from evil. Adam and Eve trusted that lying snake over their sovereign, loving Lord. They were enticed by the beautiful fruit and the thought that it would be used to make them wise. And they needed that. And that they could get that apart from what God had for them. And in doing so, it's essential to point out this clear point about Satan's lie. Because Adam and Eve's spiritual relationship with God did die that very day in the garden as they ate that fruit. And though they were given a hope and a promise by God and then clothed with animals to cover them, They were removed that day from the garden, never to return, and their bodies did die years later. Now look back at Romans 1 with me. This great indictment against God's image bearers and their sin. We didn't honor or give thanks to God, and we became futile in our thinking. Our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we became fools. How does this happen? How does this happen that we become like this? It happens because we stopped fearing the Lord. We stopped adoring him as the creator and giver of all good things. We turned away from him to the things he made. And in doing so, we became idolaters. We believed something other than God was going to provide for us of greater value than our current life circumstances God had us in and his way of living would allow for us. Verse 23 says, we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Imagine a wolf looking down at a mud puddle that has the moon in it and howling at that. Imagine that and refusing to look up to the reflections shimmering source above. How ridiculous. Wolves put their heads up to the moon and they howl. This is looking down at some some image down here. It is ridiculous, but we're just like that when we refuse to see God as the gracious giver of all we need and the one worthy of all our praise and keep our heads down focused on ourselves and our relationships and our abilities and our food and our jobs and our vacations and our families, even great things like families. And look away from God. Like Adam and Eve, we distrust that God is a good giver. But we see him as a taker who keeps from us some joy or fulfillment that we truly need, that we must grasp in something else that he's made. We've exchanged reflecting God's image to the world for collecting the world's images for ourselves. And so God gave again. But this time his giving was very different. 
This time God gave us up, or maybe better to say, God gave us over to our sin, in our sin. God giving us over means he's loosed the restraint on the sins over our individual lives and over the sins of our society. Imagine a dog on the farthest point of a leash barking at anything up ahead of him in a family park. Now see the dog running untethered toward whatever is in front of him, a squirrel, a rabbit, or maybe even a child. It's a fearful thing for a person or any of us to be at this point in our sin. It's a fearful thing for a society to be at this point in our sin. Three times in this passage, it says God gave them up or gave them over. Verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And why did God do this? He's allowing us to have what we want. He's allowing us to continue to walk into more and more idolatry. That's what we had done. Each time he's given us over, it's because of idolatry we've already committed. We don't see fit to acknowledge God. In our sin, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than our eternally blessed creator. And so as Paul is describing this, as he's going through this progression and he's talking about this, of God handing over his image bearers to their sin, as he's seeing what it looks like, he highlights one example of how this darkness manifests. So this is us getting into, okay, what are some of the things in our society where Things that are good are seen to not be good. And things that are darkness are seen and talked about like they're light. One way, turning away from God and worshiping the creature rather than the creator looks like is in people holding and living out dishonorable passions among their own sex. Verses 26 and 27 say, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The creation order, remember, again, what God has made, how he's designed it in his masterful way, is that God's images will worship and treasure him as the one holding the greatest worth of anything in existence. They just get to enjoy him. They get to know him and enjoy him as he is. Additionally, it means we witness the amazing things he's made and give God the rightful glory for them all. So the creation order also means that when God has not called someone to a gift of singleness, which is described in the Bible as a gift and as strategic for the kingdom, that a man leaves his father and mother and marries his wife. And for those in crisis also means, as we know, that Uh, A man is looking for a wife or a wife is looking for a, a, a husband that knows and loves Jesus above all things. Right. And so God designed this. He designed sexual passion and activity. Sexual activity have been set up by God from the beginning as this beautiful gift to be expressed in the safe boundaries of a marriage between one man and one woman. And so 
Let's be clear. Paul does not only focus on the sins of same-sex passion and sexual activity in any of his letters, and he doesn't do it here in Romans 1 either. In verse 29, there are a long list of traits that come out with the depths of sinfulness that happen when people have been given over to their lust and passions. Paul describes sins like covetousness and envy and murder and strife and gossip, disobedience to parents, being haughty, heartless and ruthless, among many others. I believe there are some in this list that perhaps hit close to home, probably for all of us. So why does Paul seem to separate out homosexuality before this? Why does he do that? Homosexuality, like all sexual immorality, is like fornication or um, adultery, pornography, is a sin, a special category of sin that's a sin against one's own body. It's a sin against the very image of God, which is meant to be a temple of God's Holy Spirit. If we're in Christ, we've been bought with his very blood, and so we're to honor him with our bodies. And homosexuality is also one of several sins mentioned as an abomination to God. And this means, this word is thrown around in many different ways, but it means that it's particularly appalling and that it's especially counter to God's creation design. However, we see sins like haughtiness, haughty eyes, and taking of innocent life, murder, listed below that are also considered abominations. So again, why is Paul separating this one out to talk about. The reason I believe why is that it highlights here that homosexuality seems to be one distinct way that illustrates idolatry and the turning away from God and his creation order. God's design was to worship him above the creation and to live out his plan to be fruitful and multiply through the marriage of one man and one woman. And so in this example, of homosexuality, the women are exchanging natural relations for those contrary to nature. And the men are doing the same thing, consumed with passion, committing shameless acts with other men. And so others have said well before me that this idea of living out of unity and diversity through marriage of a man and woman reflects both the, something of the Trinity and also something of the gospel. Jesus's love for the church. We clearly see that in Ephesians 5. Yet the homosexual relationship reflects a picture of the self adoring the self. Instead of the sexual act itself leading to potential children and a fruitful multiplying of God's image bearers to the ends of the earth, homosexual sex by definition is barren and contrary to God's nature. And so this morning I want to talk a few minutes about this particular sin, not to pick on it or to hold out this as as certain or compare it, but I think it's perhaps the clearest picture of what God calls sin being celebrated in our culture today, what God calls darkness being considered light. And Satan has fed us with lies that not only lead us to a turning away from God on this front, but a celebrating, a boasting of sin in its very nature. Think about this. Every June, our society does this. There are pride parades in every major U.S. city. 
And all month long, and more and more throughout the year even, LGBTQ books and movies and shows and documentaries are featured. Corporations give their full support through the symbol of a pride rainbow. Just, just think about that for a moment, a pride rainbow, right? This picture God's given a symbol of his faithfulness to withhold his promise to never flood the entire earth again and to be with man and to care over all of his creation. And it's been taken by a, a group that want to point out and have pride in themselves and the ways that they are doing things against God's created order. It's a, it's a picture of idolatry. So, so since 2015, recognizing man-invented same-sex marriage has been the law of the land. So I just say all these things. Again, I'm, I'm not seeking to pick on a, uh, any certain sin, but I'm just saying when we're trying to figure out, okay, what are those areas in our society where light is considered darkness and darkness light? This seems to be one. And so we're going to take a moment now to look at just a couple. There's so many, but a couple of the lies that Satan has given, these dark lies of his, that our society and even the church, even the church has bought into. So lie number one, what I feel is more true to who I am than what God or anyone else says. It's the first part. What I feel is more true to who I am than what God or anyone else says. And not following my feelings will rob me of my deepest fulfillment and joy. Not following my feelings will rob me of my deepest fulfillment and joy. So this is, this is one. It's a really long sentence, really long lie, but it's, I think it's pervasive. What I feel is more true to who I am than what God or anyone else says. And not following my feelings will rob me of my fulfillment and joy. So here is the truth that God says to this. He has made us in his image. He has made us for himself. And this is amazing, amazing, amazing news because God is the most joyful and precious and savorable and fulfilling being in the entire universe. Psalm 1611 says this, you make Known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Consider God who invented marriage. He invented sex to be enjoyed within marriage and to produce children that bring more joy. All the beautiful and pleasant sights, smells, sounds, tastes, and touches that are good for us all around the world that God allows us to enjoy. That was from him. He did that. He is love itself. Everything we've enjoyed that has been truly good for us has come from him, from relationships, to pets, to jobs, to promotions, to sports, to music, to all kinds of art. The more we know him, the more we'll love him. And be made more like him to enjoy his presence forever. Our sin we inherited from Adam's sin and our own, it has infiltrated every part of our being and our experience. This is what total depravity means. We don't do the worst things we possibly could do at every moment. But sin has infiltrated every part, avenue of our lives and experience. And Jeremiah 17.9 gives us a great picture of where our hearts are prior to receiving a new heart and God's spirit when we're reborn in Christ. 
and believe in him. This is, this is what it looks like prior to that. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus once said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So for anyone this morning who answers that call and turns to Jesus, we're united in his death and raised to walk in a new way. We are no longer slaves to sin. We've been given a new heart and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Our minds have been renewed and our feelings begin slowly for most of us, but sometimes fast for others. Our feelings begin to change. The Spirit convicts us of sin and gives us Christ's resurrected power to turn away from it. Here we begin to see things from God's perspective and the true battle to fight and defeat our sin by the Spirit begins. And here we can enjoy everything God has made for us. His ways and his plans for us and for you are better than any we could write up or ever find within ourselves looking. So lie number two. Jesus didn't specifically mention homosexuality or transgenderism as a sin, so he is okay with it. Answer from God's word. While Jesus did not specifically mention homosexuality or transgenderism, or a number of other sins for that matter, he did clearly address both issues by what he affirmed. When being questioned about divorce, Jesus says in Mark 10, 6 through 8, but from the beginning of creation... God has made them both male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. God's creation design of making his image bearers either male or female for life and instituting marriage between one man and one woman is part of what Jesus affirmed. And he also says in Mark 7, when talking about Um, things that defile us, that coming from our hearts, he mentions sexual immorality. He mentions it, and sexual immorality in this sense, the word is porneia, and it means every type of sexual activity outside of the marriage bonds between one man and one woman. And so Jesus does address these things. He does address them in his word. But some might say, some of you listening here might say, why does this matter? I mean, all sin is bad, and we're all sinners, and we can find forgiveness in Christ. So, and, and to what I say to that, that is, that is true. That is true. But when darkness is called light, there is no repentance from sin, and therefore no forgiveness. We have to look at the stakes. We have to look at the stakes here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 tells us clearly that practicing homosexuality, again, like many of the other sins, you can look at those sins in that list, an active lifestyle of living that out, like the other sins listed there, leads to one specific place. It leads to an eternity outside the kingdom of God. But none of the other sins listed in that list or in the list in Romans are as celebrated and accepted And even have a sense of denying wrongdoing like homosexuality seems to have in our culture. 
And so the reason why I bring it up, the reason why I say it is not to condemn. The reason is to lovingly, if we know someone is heading toward disaster, it's not love to watch them and wave them go toward it. If someone's walking, a child walking toward a busy street, right? It's not love to say, well, that child just likes the street out there. I'm going to let him play in the street. No, a loving thing is to go and stop the child. Stop the child from it. And how much more when it comes to eternity? These are images of the living God walking in the same way we were before we were pulled off the path toward an eternity apart from God. We must love them by being willing to say something. Where there's no repentance, there is no forgiveness. So in all this discussion, especially as we're exposing certain pervasive sins that may not be the ones we typically fall into ourselves, or they could be, but they may not be. But when it's like that, it's very easy to think of, okay, these people or these sins out here, right? And we can easily look down our noses at someone else. So how do we fight making ourselves spotlights or casting shade on other people or battling against those made in God's image? How do do we do this? This is part two. We've made it to part two. We remember the good news of Jesus for ourselves and our blinded fellow image bearers. We remember the good news of Jesus for ourselves and our blinded fellow image bearers. As we've seen from our sinfulness exposed in Romans 1, God gives us no room, no room for self-righteousness or pride in any aspect of our life except for in the cross of Christ. That's the only place where pride is considered good. We're all, we've all suppressed the truth and God has shown himself to be within. um, We suppress the truth of who God has shown himself to be, I should say, within creation and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. All of us have sinned and fallen short, as we know so well, of the glory of God. And we saw in Jeremiah, all our hearts and our sin are deceitful above all things and desperately sick apart from Jesus. All of us left alone in our sin are in desperate need of forgiveness and salvation. But there is an eternal hope that we have to remember and have to be willing to share with other people. And that's that God's own son willingly came as the perfect image of the invisible God. And he lived this flawless life of obedience to God. And therefore he did what we have failed to do, which is impeccably represent him, God himself to all creation. And then he died a death to pay the penalty for any and all who would turn to him in repentance and faith and place their trust in him. So on the third day, we know he rose bodily from the dead, proving his death was the perfect um, satisfaction of God's wrath and sacrifice. He did all of this. And all of us are in need of this. All of us are in need of repentance and faith in Christ's death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection power. That's the only hope we have to be made right with God, to truly be able to enjoy him now in this dark world and in the ages to come forever and ever. And we're all, we all recognize that we're broken. We're broken. And we need to come to God 
and brokenness and repentance and desperation, longing for his forgiveness and acceptance in anyone, anyone who comes to him in that manner will not be cast out. No matter what they have done, no matter what you have done or anyone else has done, if you come to God with a broken and contrite heart, he will not despise you. And so I ask this morning to each of you, have you, have you, Come to Jesus in this broken and contrary heart over all of your sin. Have you looked at him and sought his forgiveness that he alone can give? If you have not, if you have not, and you are sensing an urging in your heart to, to do this, to make this step, it would make my year, it would make my life to be able to talk to you after this or any of the other elders to be able to talk through what it means to receive Christ in this way, to see him as Lord and Savior and treasure. And so after the list of sins, Paul states in 1 Corinthians 6, going back to that passage, that disqualify people from God's kingdom, he mentions something wonderful. He mentions one of the most important words about identity in the entire Bible. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, in reference to those types of sinners disqualified from heaven, he says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. And though your sins defined your identity and lifestyle, they defined all of our identity and lifestyle before Christ. That is past. When you come into repentance and faith to Jesus, it is a new start. It is a clean slate. It is forgiveness and he's not, he knows that we won't do it perfectly even after that. But it is a continual repentance and faith in Jesus to more and more be the washed, sanctified, justified images of the living God we were meant to be. And so even with this new identity, as I said, as cleansed image bearers, the Bible still points out that sin is still present. We're saints who still sin. And God has graciously forgiven us in Christ of the penalty of our sin and freed us from its power over us. And yet its presence is still in our dark world and can be in our own lives. So many of us here have been broken in some way by sexual sin and may even be struggling with it now. It, it could be impure thoughts, pornography. It could be lust. It could be sin similar to what we've heard today, homosexual desires or actions that you've taken or are wanting to take. And this is a place, hear me on this, this is a place where we don't hide from our sin. We don't pretend everything is okay here. It's also not a place where we flaunt our sin and celebrate it without repentance. It's a place where we confess our sins to one another and we point each other to the truth of Jesus and the way that he works to restore and to free and to reconcile with Almighty God. And so knowing this great gospel and knowing the hope that is for anyone that will turn to it, how do we serve as light in a place that loves darkness and hates the light? How do we do this, especially for those that we know that would consider themselves a part of this community, LGBTQ community? Or consider themselves struggling or living in this. How do we approach them humbly and boldly with the light of the gospel? And here's how we do it. The answer this is part three. 
seeing Christ's glory ahead, seeing his glory ahead, we die to self and we follow the light into the darkness. Seeing Christ's glory ahead, we die to self and follow the light into the darkness. So what does it look like to reflect the image of Christ to the LGBTQ plus community? Well, first thing, just a, just a few things to consider. First thing, it's not a surprise for you, I'm sure, but pray. Pray for courage to move past, and I'm, I'm speaking to myself here, complacency or fear or unbelief to actually risk talking to your friend or loved one. Pray before and during and after for the Holy Spirit to open up their hearts to hear gracious truth from you and other people that God has in store. Pray to the Father for the Spirit to guide your words, to truth it in love as we've been called to do, to reflect more of Jesus who John 1 says was full of grace and truth, to represent him well in that way. And pray for God to grant repentance and faith in Christ for your loved one. So pray. Secondly, listen. Listen to their story and struggles and pain and joys. Love them through listening. That's a, that's a big part of showing honor and care for someone. And I'm someone seeking to learn how to be a better listener in many cases where I've failed. But look for opportunities to share your own struggles. Every single one of us, if we know Christ, has a story from where he's brought us out of. And has an awesome testimony to be able to share with someone else of his goodness and his redeeming love for us. And so look for opportunities to share that. And then certainly bring the truth of the call to Jesus to turn from all sin, to die to self, and to believe in him. Share the gospel of what he has actually done and that it is freely offered for them. Freely offered for them. And as it's appropriate, as it seems best, consider asking some of these, in a gentle way, some of these questions of your loved one. These came from a fellow image bearer and sister in Christ, Rosaria Butterfield, who was formerly in a same-sex relationship prior to knowing Jesus. She said these questions in a, in a new book of hers that she's got out. She says this, to ask this, these questions, do you trust your feelings or the word of God? Do you perceive your feelings Through the word of God or the word of God through your feelings? Do your feelings know you best or the God who made you? As Christians, part of trusting Christ means believing his word over our feelings. We give his word authority over our experiences, over our local church ways of seeing things, over ancient church traditions, and over anything in this world that pits itself against the truth of God's never-changing word. So in our feebleness, we pray for God's power to boldly share the light of the gospel of Christ with images of God who have been fed dark lies of our enemy that's so pervasive in our culture. And we do this with hope. Do you remember that town in Alaska? I can't even pronounce it. Ukagvik, I think is how you say it. It's an Inuit word. There's one thing you may not realize that every residence of that town knows. And it's that every summer, there is a period of 88 days 
of continual sunlight with no darkness at all. So no matter how long the winter is and how long the dark is, everyone knows that summer and light is coming that will outlast the long dark of winter. And so I say to you this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, we live in a world that calls darkness light and light darkness. The enemy has continued to scatter his lies and dark assault on God's image. But the light of life has told us the truth that he's returning again. And there is a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And not only will we be found forgiven of the penalty of our sin, And freed from the power of sin. But we will be completely made free of the presence of all sin forever and ever. And in that place, there will be no need for sun or moon. For the glory of God gives us light and his lamp is the lamb. And there is no darkness in that place at all. And that is where we're headed forever and ever. So take that in mind. Think about that. As his image bearers will perfectly reflect and worship and praise the Lord in his glorious light in that place. Because our faith will be sight. So as we walk in this dark world that calls evil good and good evil, we can shine the light of Christ. The light of life in us. And we'll know the light has shined in the darkness. And the darkness has not and never will overcome it. Let's pray.